Welcome to the RSA Events Podcast, the home of world-changing ideas and debate. Hello everyone, my name is Karen Kwok. Uh, I'm a journalist and columnist at Reuters Breaking Views. I'll be your chair for today and I'm delighted to be joined by Brett Scott. So Brett is a journalist, campaigner, monetary anthropologist and former financial broker. He's also the author of the Hathic, ha- Hathic's Guide to Global Finance, Hacking the Future of Money. And he has written extensively on financial reform, digital finance, blockchain, and cashless society for many publications like The Guardian. So today, our topics today is about his new book, uh, Cloud Money, Cash, Cards, Crypto, and War for Our Wallets, which has recently joined uh, the list of the publication. So let's say hello to Brett. Welcome, Brett. Hi, Karen. Great to be here. Great to see. Uh, great to hear from you. So recently, I've written I've written a book review of your book, and I read your book about it. It's a very fascinating uh, approach, and uh, on how to how you describe the current monetary system and how it affects consumer. So, give us a little bit background of uh, like one of the few key points that you want to question today's society moving away from cash. Yeah, sure. I mean, there's a few different things that led up to this book, actually. Uh, actually, I published a book in 2013 called The Heretic's Guide to Global Finance, which was all about challenging the financial sector and challenging the power of the financial sector and uh, geared towards civil society, you know, saying there are ways to build new forms of finance. And around that time, it was just after the financial crisis had, had hit. So actually, it was all these tech companies who also actually like self-identified as being uh, at least trying to challenge the financial sector too. So I found myself getting invited into many of these sort of tech forums where these sort of fintech companies would be saying, hey, well, we're also doing alternative finance. And you know, you write about alternative finance. So I found myself getting drawn to this world of technology. And bear in mind, back in around, say, 2008 or so, the big tech was still viewed, I'd say, quite uncritically. Uh, you know, Google was sort of seen as a sort of friendly company and so on. And, and so actually, a lot of these fintech companies were sort of trading on this idea that tech was this force for good, this force for democratization. And the whole sort of narrative around financial technology was very much around this idea that they would, you know, fix finance, it would make finance more democratic and so on. But if you fast forward now, you know, 10 years, what's you know, it's becoming increasingly apparent that actually many of these big tech companies are really fusing into big finance via many of these fintech infrastructures. So the story of democratization is becoming more and more hazy and murky and problematic. And within that overarching trend of, you know, big finance sort of merging into sort of big tech, you see the cash system. So I'd be, I'd be seeing all these um, stories about why the cash system was, a physical cash was being... Uh, why it was disappearing and it was always positioned as if it was a bottom-up phenomenon as if there was the reason why cash is disappearing is all because we are all as individuals are choosing to uh, move towards digital systems and I found this narrative quite dissatisfying I mean certainly there's an element of uh, change in economic systems that can be located in ordinary people 
but I, I found that it was missing the main one of the main components, which are these sort of top-down pushes against the cash system by big tech and big finance. So the book is trying to rebalance the narrative around why cash is declining. Um, so it's not denying that there are things going on within us as people where we start to perceive digital money as being more convenient, but it's pointing out in a way how the sort of these structural changes in the economy and pushes from big players, which make it ever more likely that we'll begin to choose digital payment systems and move away from cash. So it's sort of trying to rebalance the story about where this, this move away from cash comes from. And in the book, you actually use this a very interesting, a helpful metaphor, like a casino, which I find really interesting to, um, to explaining how the monetary system is not as we consumer or ordinary people who might think it is. Do you mind to give sure, us a sure, bit of breakdown? Yeah. yeah? So um, having, you know, over the years, I've done lots of work on monetary systems and talking about monetary reform. And I would often come across people who would have this, these lot of critiques about, about the financial system and the monetary system, but they often imagined that there was one form of money in society, right? And lo a lot of their sort of ideas about what was happening was um, often predicated upon this idea that there's a single form of money in society. And actually, there's not, there's not a single form of money. We, uh, what we call the monetary system is actually a a hybrid or symbiotic system almost, which has at least two big components to it and actually a third component. But I designed the casino metaphor as a way to illustrate this. And what I'll ask a person to imagine is to say, imagine walking into a casino and you have, you know, a hundred pounds of government issued physical cash in your hand, right? You hand it over to the cashier at a casino and they yeah. give you chips. Now, those chips are a privately issued form of money. They're a sort of a secondary form of money that you can use within the private confines of the casino. And right, we actually quite easily understand this. In, in a casino, you can easily see that there's two forms of money. There's the cash sitting behind the counter, and then there's these chips that we actually use. And the casino owns the former, and we own the latter. And actually, this is a very good starting point to understand the banking sector more generally because what the banking sector does is actually not dissimilar to this it issues us digital chips so it's, it issues us these private these privately issued digital chips that we then call british pounds so anything you see in your bank account is actually a private if you, if you have for example a barclays bank account you have barclays issued digital chips right and those can be redeemed back for cash at an ATM. And the big superpower that banks have is that they are able to issue far more of these chips than they actually have in government money. All right? And that's sometimes referred to as fractional reserve banking, but it's um, credit creation of money is another way to put it. But actually, what, when, when we call, when we call, what we call the cashless society is a society where you move to that system of privately issued bank chips um, and away from the state monetary system. So I often think the term cashless society is a kind of a euphemism um, mm. for the full privatization of money and the essentially a bank dominated society. Yeah, and then also not just banks, right? Like FinTech companies like Visa, MasterCard, they all play a part in it and That's trying cool. to grab, like, grab revenue on each transaction and even big tech companies, they like Apple, for example, they also grab a piece of it, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, look, the, the banking sector forms the underlying foundation, the, so the, the account infrastructure of what modern digital money systems, which, you know, when you're using your contactless card and so on, 
the main account infrastructure is run by the banks. Players like Visa and MasterCard basically specialize in telling the banks which of their customers are trying to do transactions. So if I'm trying to pay, pay you, Visa might say, hey, Brett's trying to pay Karen. And we'll tell our banks, we'll basically instruct our banks that we're trying to do that. So Visa and MasterCard act as these intermediaries between the banks, telling them how to essentially who to move digital chips to. And then players like PayPal and so on actually plug into that whole system as well. So they become these sort of third tier players that plug into the banking sector. So you can mm -hmm. almost imagine the monetary system as having these concentric rings. So the sort of the core system run by the state then the sort of secondary system run by the banking sector and the sort of tertiary systems run by players like PayPal and they all kind of like plug into each other. And uh, yeah, and this has become, and obviously the fintech companies rely upon the digital account infrastructure run by players like the banking sector because a lot of the fintech companies just don't want to deal with offline forms of money. They want to deal with online money, right? So and the big tech companies as well. Yeah, and also, and re really, from one of the things that I found in your book is that, like Visa, Mastercard, they also donate a lot of money, like create a lot of incentives to encourage consumers or rest or businesses to use the system. It's kind of feel like a little bit manipulative. Is it what you're trying? Yeah, to Yeah, absolutely. And um, in some ways, uh, one part of the book is trying to show what's sometimes called the war on cash, which is a kind of a, you know, sort of sensationalized way of talking about the sort of top-down pushes against the cash system. Because bear in mind, as I said earlier, the typical way it's presented in the media is as a sort of bottom-up. So you'll, yeah. find, you'll find phrases like, you know, consumers move away from digital payments. And what's implied in that is that we have desire, all right? Now, it's true that we are making choices, but that doesn't necessarily mean those choices are... Um, made in full knowledge of what's going on or that they're actually based on desire sometimes they're based on you know the fact that for example the cash infrastructure is being shut down so cash is becoming ever more inconvenient relative to a digital payment so of course you are then more likely to choose the digital mm. payment system so there's all these processes going on which make it ever more likely and a lot of um, one component of the war on cash is these sort of ideological pushes by Visa and places like that, you know. So Visa, for example, you know, ran this big campaign in London called Cash Free and Proud, where it was basically trying to essentially shame people who still use, or actually who use cash and often prefer mm -hmm. cash. Mm -hmm. And Visa's very explicit, you know, they openly stated, we aim to make cash seem peculiar by 2020 in London. And well, they basically achieved that because increasingly London yeah. does feel peculiar. And that wasn't the case a few years ago, right? So this has actually been a psychological shift that's occurred in the last few years. And one component of that has been the actual ideological attacks against the cash system made by the marketing departments of these big, these big companies. Um, yeah, but the war on cash has many different components. There are sometimes state actors as well. Uh, so there's many different actors in the book is kind of going into, into those. But um, yeah, the big payments companies like Visa and MasterCard are very well known for their very overt attacks on the cash system. Yeah, I mean, I have to admit, like these days, I don't really bring out my wallet anymore. I just use my Apple Pay and all the time and I stick with digital payment in London. But I'm just wondering, because that is also partly being driven by pandemic, right? Because um, they also uh, people don't want to touch cash. And, but then in the book, you kind of mentioned that that is actually not true. Yeah, I mean, bear in mind, this, this push against the cash system has been going on far way before the pandemic existed. So, but the pandemic certainly was sort of supercharged that process. And part of it was people just sort of 
getting freaked out by physicality briefly, right? So this idea that well, everything that's physical must somehow be potentially contaminated. But then another part of it was actually a lot of commercial players who already had a prior interest in moving away from the cash system, use it as an excuse, mm. all right? And, and you can see this now very easily because a lot of things have kind of gone back to, to normal in a sense. For example, in London, many places no longer require masks. There's also things like that. But a lot of the payment stuff has stayed set in digital, right? So in a sense, this was, this was already something that these players were planning to do and basically mm -hmm. now won't go back to cash, all right? So they use the pandemic as a way to sort of accelerate this process. But from a scientific perspective, I mean, it's been largely debunked this idea that cash is a unique vector for spreading COVID. I mean, the first, the first players to deny this were the, the Robert Koch Institute in Germany, which is a respected health institute in Germany, who came out and says cash is, is not a particular threat for COVID. The Bank for International Settlements said it, and actually the Bank of England eventually said it when they released a scientific report saying, actually touch screens and pin pads and card terminals and trolley handles are far more dangerous than, than, than cash. Um, mm -hmm. So I think this has largely been debunked in terms of from a scientific perspective, but a lot of these big retailers will continue to sort of spread this message, um, which of course has had a big detrimental effect on cash usage. So I mean, cash usage plummeted about about forty percent or so during the during the pandemic. But do you think that this is it? Like we will just switch to digital payment and cash will never will be hard to come back. What do you think we need to do then? Well, look, I mean, the, the, let's put it this way, the, the standard narrative that you'll find in the public domain is this idea that the end of cash is inevitable. So, but the reality is probably going to be different. Okay, so we have a story, which is in the public domain. And I personally argue that the story has largely been set in place by commercial players who have an incentive to get everyone to believe that story. But in, term, but in terms of actual the stability of the monetary system, it would be a very, very big problem if the cash system gets degraded, all right? Um, and lots of people in monetary policy circles understand this, even central bankers understand this. If the cash system goes down, you have huge problems with the resilience of your monetary system. Um, bear in mind, to use that casino metaphor that I, I talked about earlier, you got to think about the digital money as being these privately issued these sort of chips, as it were, digital chips. Mm. Um, but whatever, when, when the people start to distrust the banking sector or there's instability in the banking sector, the first thing they do is try to, in a sense, run out of the casino, right? And get, redeem their, their, their chips back into state money. This is sometimes called bank runs, all right? Where you're trying to get out of the banking sector. And uh, in a, uh, an imagined cashless society, you wouldn't be able to do this, right? You actually wouldn't be able to exit the banking sector because all money mm -hmm. is essentially going to be bank, bank chips. So this poses actual real big problems for financial stability. Um, so there's a lot of things like that. But even from a sort of perspective of, you know, resilience to weather events and system outages, I mean, the Federal Reserve, and, you know, this is something I mentioned in the book, Federal Reserve employees will talk about this, that, that you know, when there's a hurricane approaching the US, there's a massive spike in cash demand. Mm. Okay, So actually, in many situations, cash is a superior form of money. Uh, we live under an ideology that says more complex, more large-scale, faster systems are always better. But actually, complex, large-scale systems are very risky and, and lack resilience a lot of the time, whereas these sort of physical systems can actually be much more resilient. So I think in a future were characterized by climate change and actually geopolitical instability, 
cyber attacks and things like this, it's not actually obvious that states want the cash system to go down. Mm. That damages the, the, the resilience of your monetary system. Um, I don't know if I'm fully answering your question here, but I think <laughs> we, we, we got to challenge this idea that somehow analog forms will all disappear in society. I think we're actually going to see a return to the analog at some point um, as and people realize. And I think that the regulators, they are all aware of this, right? Because I see that the UK Financial Conduct Authority and also some of the states in the US, they are trying their best to introduce regulations to preserve cash, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And bear in mind, you know, cash is issued by public uh, institutions like the Federal Reserve in the US or, you know, the Bank of England in, in the UK and also the Treasury. So there's two, there's, there's different issues of, of cash in the, in the state system. Um, but there is because they're state players, they don't really they don't really market it. They don't, they don't there's mm -hmm. no advertising budget. Whereas of course all your digital players are venture capital financed or they have big they're essentially profit seeking institutions. So they have huge marketing budgets. So, so when you're when you're standing on the London Underground, you'll see lots of these adverts of digital payments. You'll never see an announcement from the Bank of England saying, "Hey, by the way, if the cash system go, if it goes, you're going to have serious there'll be serious problems in society." Right. There's never mm -hmm. any type of, of sort of encouragement about what that system is or, or um, discussion about it or actually pushing out how useful it can be and how it promotes financial inclusion and so on. Um, so, yeah, it's a big sort of problem that there isn't this um, proactive messaging about the cash, the cash system. And mm. um, I think increasingly there's going to have to be at some point this move where when these, these players start to actually say, we got to start actively promoting it. Right. And um, mm. which is very unpopular to say right now in, in, the, in a world where digital hype is so high. Mm. Uh, yeah. Well, but I think that isn't it like, for example, in Germany, which I think you wrote in the book as well, uh, historically or culturally, they actually like using cash. Yeah, do you so see do you see them changing as well in pandemic? And yeah, well, I mean, society? I mean, I'm based in Berlin right now. And even in Berlin, you can start to see the sort of uh, our, the way I would describe it as creeping corporate capitalism. You can start mm -hmm. to see the, when these little places that go cashless, it's almost like little outposts of, of, of global tech and big finance are being established amongst the otherwise um, unenclosed uh, space. So, when I, you know, because if you think about as more and more of those places going cashless, it becomes harder and harder to not use massive tech and financial infrastructures. So it's a process of enclosure, right? And, mm. and initially it sort of seems innocuous and kind of like it's like oh well whatever right so in berlin right now for example there's a couple of little places that are starting to spring up and it's always very class related it's always your sort of bougie kind of hipster uh international class which will mm -hmm. be the first ones to to do this and all your kind of working class populations will remain often in cash cash economies um or at least much more prone to using cash but increasing that encroaches onto all areas. So, so in London right now, you will see that very heavily. There's, a, there's actually a kind of dual economy forming. If you walk around London, if you're a person who doesn't either can't use the banking sector or doesn't want to use the banking sector for payments, you increasingly are shut out of, of most places. You're being increasingly forced mm. right, to, to use these systems. Um, so there's a, there's a sort of moment where it's voluntary to use digital payments. So, you know, in Berlin, that's, that largely remains the case. But in many other places, this is becoming, uh, it will no longer be voluntary at some point, right? And yeah. uh, that's something that has to be sort of be reversed. But there's many of these cultural aspects. So in, in Germany, um, there's a lot of cultural resistance 
to um, uh, well, well, cultural. Uh, yeah, there's a lot. Of, there's a very high cash usage for many for many reasons, such as the historical mm. scares around the Stasi and the surveillance that was involved. And there's many there's many reasons in Germany why cash is still still used a lot. Well, besides the commercial and cultural interests, like some people were arguing that the why we need to, the reason why we need to move to digital payment is because we can better track um, the consumer data and better track, for example, like illicit use of cash. So, for example, like quite a lot of um, countries for uh, in India or something, they don't, uh, they normally use cash in order to dodge taxes. So I was just wondering, what do you think about that argument? Yeah, of course, this is one of the biggest arguments often used by the digital payments industry to talk about um, why cash is inferior to digital payments. I can say a number of things about this, but you know, the first one being that uh, the normal digital payment system run by the banking sector is extensively used for criminal activity. Okay, mm. so the FBI has entire teams which specialize in, in watching, trying, trying to track the transactions. Because bear in mind, if you're trying to do elaborate international frauds and stuff, it, you, all you need to do is do sort of webs of digital transactions and you, you, you create a nightmare for law enforcement, right? So, uh, especially with the offshore system and so on, which all uses digital bank transfers, they don't use cash. All right. So there's, there's that point. Um, but also, actually, historically, there's an interesting sort of power sharing thing going on in the monetary system. So you'll have state issued money, which is cash, which is slow and physical. All right. And then bank issued money, which is fast and digital. Now, it's true that some cash is going to be used for criminal transactions. That could be a very small percentage, actually. All right. Um, but the thing about it, it's because it's slow and physical, it actually has all this friction built into it. So if you're trying to do international crime with the cash system, it's actually quite hard. Hmm. All right. Whereas international crime with digital systems is much easier, especially in the age of crypto, crypto tokens, where you can transnationally send digital, uh, digital tokens across borders. All right. So actually, in some ways, many states understand that, yeah, sure, a small percentage of the cash system will be used for crime. Um, but it's not like the digital system is not being used for crime. And it's not like in a hypothetical cashless society, you are somehow going to eliminate criminality or tax evasion. Bear in mind that the, the entire banking sector, which underpins the digital payment system, extensively facilitates large scale corporate tax avoidance. All right. Mm. So it's, it's one of these things when you're looking at trade-offs and systems. So you say, okay, fine, we, we understand there's going to be forms of bad behavior, but there's also going to, it's going to also enable many good things, all right? Yeah. So if you're so, solely focusing on we must eliminate all forms of you know, untraceable payments, you're going to create a whole bunch of dystopian things in the process and a lot of poor resilience in your system too. So if you're, an agent, if you're a sort of a state policymaker, you're going to be thinking about how you balance those off against each other rather than trying to eliminate um all forms of untraceable payments well i mean crypto definitely doesn't really come with a really good reputation when it comes a link to digital payment as we have heard in the past few months uh with different scandals and so on uh but what about central banks cbdc central banks digital currency since that since it's regulated by the government won't it be even safer well, bear in mind, we live in the capitalist economies, right? So uh, one thing that states in capitalist economies don't like to do is to 
destroy their own banking sectors. So for example, in the UK, uh, the big banks, HSBC, Barclays, Santander, et cetera, these are very powerful political players. It's well known in the UK that there's basically a type of capture of the political system by the banking sector, right? So oh. these institutions are too big to fail. Now, if the state says, we're going to start issuing a digital form of money. So let's return to the casino analogy. I, 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 I walk up with physical state money and get this privately issued form of money. Imagine I now have this digital form of state money. And I, and I say, well, why, am I, why do I want to get a bank account? Why am I going to open a bank account if I can hold this safe form of digital money issued by the state? Now, if you're, if you're, a, if you're a capitalist state, you're going to be very concerned about this possibility of if we issue our own digital money, we could actually undermine our own banking sector because we're going to start to directly compete with them on the digital, the digital grounds, as it were. Mm -hmm. So right now, the power sharing balance is like you can use the slow physical state money or you can use the fast digital corporate money. Um, and in a way, that balance sort of works, right? And that, in, in, a, in a sense, the CBD, CBDC debate is, is sort of messing with that because... One of the reasons that states are considering CBDC is precisely because the cash system has been, has been eroded and undermined, all right? And they're thinking, well, we have to have some form of state money available. Uh, and so, but if they issue their own form of digital money, they're going to undermine the banking sector. So they're kind of stuck in this bind. It's mm -hmm. actually in the interest of states to maintain the cash system partly because it'll help them to not compete with the banking sector. I hope that makes sense. But there's a whole sort of, a political mesh you got to look at um, when, you, when you're sort of thinking about the sort of CBDC debate. But hypothetically, um, yeah, if they issued a CBDC, you'd be able to hold a safe form of state-issued money in digital form. But are you saying that, are you suggesting that they might not eventually push it? Because Swedish government, they pushed the e-corner already, right? And China yeah, as well. Bear in mind that when, when we say push this, they, they sort of publicly say that they're interested in these things. Whether they're actually going to try to actively promote these things depends on what your political situation is in your country. So in mm. China, there's a much stronger connection between you know, the state and the banking sector in terms of there's much, it's got a much more sort of, um, many of the banks in a sense are sort of state controlled, right? So in, in a way, the Chinese government has less of this, this, pro, this dilemma between competing with the banking sector. Um, whereas in the UK, if you try to, uh, I guarantee you the banking sector will lobby extremely hard against CBDC in the UK. And I, I would I actually would know that I've, I've heard this many times from insiders in the Bank of England that, uh, yeah, the banking sector does not want you to be able to access some digital form of the pound issued by the state, right? Because mm -hmm. then you might, you know, so, so this is, depends what your country is. In Sweden, um, yeah, the e-corona has been pushed, but partially because in Sweden, they've undermined the cash system so much. That in a sense, the Swedish government's basically saying, well, we've basically allowed our cash system to be destroyed. Um, and now we've been pushed into the situation where we've got to try and trial out these digital forms of state money. Mm, interesting. And that, lastly, I want to go back to crypto. Although I know that we said that currently the crypto state of play is kind of unstable at the moment with regulation coming in and a lot of different scandal collapsing, volatility and so on. But I just wondering, like for crypto, uh, for crypto, especially like Bitcoin, like um, when they launched back in 2008, they promised kind of like a new, fair future of money. So what what's going on here? Do you think that it can one day become democratization 
of money or it would become better for all of us to use? Sure. I mean, the, I was involved in the early Bitcoin community in, in London. And so I've had quite a lot of experience. Uh, I've done many things with Bitcoin. I've used it for exchange. I've been involved in various types of um, things around, around the Bitcoin system. So I, I understand it a lot, but I've become very critical of Bitcoin over the years. Um, and the main thing I would say about, well, it's, I've become partially critical uh, mm -hmm. about the narrative that surrounds it. All right. So so one thing I would immediately say about things like, like Bitcoin, because crypto is a much broader sort of field than just Bitcoin, but let's look at Bitcoin. Um, it's essentially a highly sophisticated underlying technological architecture, but a very, very crude token system. So you want to think about Bitcoin as being a, yeah, a very crude digital token implemented on a very sophisticated technological architecture. And many people look at the sophisticated, complicated technological architecture, which is a sort of decentralized structure. And they say, oh, wow, the, the, the money, that's in, the, the, the tokens must also be advanced somehow. Uh, but really the tokens are extremely crude and actually don't really operate as money at, at, at all. What the tokens really are when you, once you start to peel away the, the sort of layers of language and so on is that they're, they're kind of like, um, I, I, just, I just call them digital collectibles now. They're sort of these money branded digital objects. So a sort mm. of digital object with sort of monetary branding pasted over it, which then you can trade on a market and can, you can get prices for them, right? So people fixate upon the speculative price of these objects that you can buy and sell. And once they have a price, you can actually use them for exchange via a process called counter trade, which is you can actually do with anything that has a price. All right. So if I have something that costs 100 pounds and you have something that costs 100 pounds, I can just say, hey, let's swap these things. All mm -hmm. right. And that's a process of using two money priced objects to sort of swap with each other. And you, but you're using the monetary system to decide upon the exchange ratio. So with Bitcoin, it's very much like this. You look at its uh, its price and then you look at the price of something else and then you say what's the exchange ratio based on on these this pricing so actually crypto one of the most interesting things that's introduced into our monetary system is this kind of this this new age of counter trade as it were this this use of non-monetary objects for exchange all right so the way mm -hmm. i think about bitcoin is it's, it's kind of like a parasitic system rather than something that actually competes with the monetary system it rather sort of parasites upon it which is actually is quite Quite which is not exactly cash right no no i mean it's but it's, it, it does form some interesting new strategies right so it's not competing with these these other monetary systems but it does it kind of like rides upon them in a sense it's kind of like parasites upon them and if you are for example somebody who is let's say you're a political dissident and you're suddenly stuck in a situation where you have been thrown out of the banking sector and you need to find some temporary form of exchange, certainly you can use these speculative digital objects um, to sort of temporarily hold uh, or temporarily, um, you know, be able to use for exchange and so on. But you're going to have massive volatility because the, the price of these objects swings hugely. It can collapse by 40% and then jump up by 40%. And if you're, if, say, for example, it's, you know, a person who doesn't have large amounts of savings, that's a kind of a terrifying experience, right? You'll have your nervous system plugged into this kind of extremely volatile um, object. So it has a sort of partial use, but not something that could be very long-term or sustainable for any particular person. 
Mm-hmm. Unless you're and treating it as a sort of investment object. Mm, I see. Won't it change though if more digital players uh, like Visa and Mastercard uh, started uh, providing routes to use for e-commerce use and so on? Would would it change the nature of that? Do you think? Uh, probably not. No. no. I mean, mm-hmm. it, it, would, it, could, it could make it easier to use. But bear in mind, making it easier to use a volatile speculative object it doesn't mean it's going to become less volatile. Mm. Um, actually, if anything, Bitcoin has become more volatile over time rather than less. So in some, you know, I used to work in financial markets and sometimes you get this idea that, you know, highly liquid markets, the more players who are involved, the more stable it will become. All right. Whereas the fewer players, the more volatile it will be. Um, whereas in, actually in Bitcoin, one of the main problems you have is it's, it's, it's not really tethered to any underlying thing in the real economy. So it's highly subject to just quite random changes in price, right? Because you can't really ever test if it's overvalued or not, all right? So it's very, very prone to these huge spikes and crashes. Um, and it, it doesn't matter if, if Visa might very well f- create some new way for you to easily you know, enter that system, but it's not going to change that underlying problem, which is highly volatile, right? Mm-hmm. Um, Although many people in the Bitcoin community would get very angry with me for saying that, but um, I've been around the system for a long time and I know a lot about it. So <laughs> I, I'm, I'm confident in saying that. Good to know. Um, so we don't have crypto, we don't have central banks, digital currency, and we're moving to digital currency, uh, digital payment. So it doesn't leave us a lot of option uh, to, pro- to protect cash, isn't it? Which is what you summarize in your book. So what should we do? Should we just start campaigning against the digital payments, try to, trying to be more cautious about the use of cash? What do yeah. you suggest? Yeah, sure. And bear, bear in mind, this book in some ways is playing into a broader body of tech critique. You know, for example, I'm not the first person to point out surveillance and digital systems and so on. I'm sort of targeting it towards finance. But actually, many of these issues we, we, we experience in our digital lives more generally. More and more people find themselves getting, in a sense, like sucked into their smartphones. And, you know, you might experience these systems as, as providing some kind of convenience, but you're also simultaneously aware that you're becoming imprisoned in them. Many people increasingly feel like they're addicted to these systems and they actually feel a bit like gross about it. Like there's something, something slightly wrong in these systems, even when they have this idea going on in their head that it's, well, it's inevitable and it's bringing me all these things. There's still the sense of being captured by something, right? And many people increasingly are trying to, you know, uh, I have friends who will put their phones into these little Faraday cages to try and stop them receiving messages and so on. So there's lots of this sort of digital backlash that's starting to form. So I think a lot of people are, are beginning to intuitively understand that, fine, there's a part of us that might like digital systems, but there's other parts of us that get um, uh, sort of harmed by that. Right. So I think a pro-cash movement might actually start to organically form as people start to both understand the implications um, which you'll very quickly understand in an actual cashless society. You'll very quickly see what those problems are. Um, but also, so, so I think from the sort of bottom up, there can be pushes against it. But I also think there needs to be top-down state action. There needs to mm. actually be policy changes. It needs to be, um, you know, these laws saying you can't um, stop people using cash. Um, partly because it's, it's just it's just so... Um, uh, there's such such huge class dynamics. When you stop people using cash, you basically screen out all sorts of people. It has huge exclusion 
um, attached to that. So I think there's a lot of, a lot of uh, uh, reasons to say states should be pushing it. And also, of course, in, as I mentioned earlier about uh, resilience, resilience mm. in an age of climate change and geopolitical cyber attacks. I mean, really, you've got to try and protect these systems. And one of the things I often talk about cash, as I say, it's, it's a bit like the, the public bicycle system of payments. Right? Yeah. Your digital systems are like the private Uber system. And you, you might like Uber for transport, but you don't want controlling your whole transport system, right? So the cash system is similar. It's a sort of this... Um, we need to get back in control, basically. Yeah, yeah. So it has been so wonderful to speak to you, Brett, but I'm afraid that's what we've got time for today. Uh, thank you so much. And thank, thank you. you, everyone who's tuned in to watch. If you would like to learn more about what uh, everything we've discussed, uh, Brett's new book is out at the moment. Uh, and thank you so much, Jesse, uh, for hosting this event. Uh, if you would like to read more about the realities of a cashless society, you can read the RSA's recent, recent cash census report and link will be appearing in the live chat right now. Thank you all for watching and see you next time. Thanks for listening. If you like this podcast, head to our YouTube channel for inspiring talks, interviews, and animations.